Thanks, Damien, for bringing that to us. Uh, we're going to spend a good deal of time this morning in that passage from 2 Samuel 7. So if you want to find that, uh, that will be very helpful. I think that was on page 306 or thereabouts. I'm going to pray for us and ask God to help us as we seek to understand this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this chance uh, to look at your word. I pray you'd make it relevant and life-changing to us. I thank you, Father, that you are here to do that, and so I ask it in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, When the kids are in the rooms next door uh, and they're not paying attention, there is an answer that they can always give that's right most of the time. Does Does anyone know what the answer is that's right most of the time when you're in New Life Kids? That's right. Okay, the answer that's right most of the time. If you haven't really been paying attention, the answer that's right most of the time is? Are you a bit... Is? Okay, good. Now you're paying attention. It's fine. Now I'll ask you that answer a little bit later on, which is good. Uh, it's not just Jesus, because there are lots of people called Jesus. There were, and there still are today. We're talking about a particular Jesus. Jesus Christ. And uh, if you're not as familiar with church things, you you might be thinking, I'm Stuart Starr, he's Jesus Christ. Is it more than his second name? Is Jesus Christ, is Christ more than his second name? The answer to that is, yeah, it's much more, and that's what we're going to try and see this morning, much more than his second name. So let's have a look at this word, Christ. Uh, I don't normally do language stuff here, but okay, bear with me this morning, okay? Up the top there, in Greek, is a word. Can anyone read it for us? It says Christos. Very amazing, isn't it? Uh, Christos. Christos means Christ. Fantastic. So now you know a little bit of Greek. Awesome. That doesn't really help us explain what it means. It just, that's where it comes from. That's why we have Jesus Christ, the Greek for Christ. That's okay. The Greek was translating a Hebrew word, which was this one, Meshach, which is Messiah. And so now you go, oh, okay, okay, Christ equals a Hebrew word, Messiah. No problems. We're all clear now, aren't we? That doesn't really help us, does it? So what does Messiah mean? Well, Messiah in Hebrew means anointed in English, anointed. Now, we anointed Charlotte with water today, put water onto her head. If you are anointing someone in this time, the time of the Bible, you do it with oil, and it's to signify, anointed is to signify that someone is being made to be the king. So if we take what we've just learned then and pull it together, what we actually see is that Christ is king. That's what we're saying. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. Great, fantastic. But why is Jesus a king? Why is, why is Jesus a king? It's got something to do with David, clearly, because we're doing a whole series on David, so it must have something to do with David. But David, this King David, lived a thousand years before Jesus. So how do we put Jesus and David together? That's what we're going to try and see uh, from 2 Samuel 7 here. And in order to do it, we need to go back even a little bit further back than that. In uh, uh, God's people were in slavery in Egypt. And you've heard of uh, maybe uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, 
ooh, baby, let my people go. Has anyone heard this before? So God said, I want to bring my people out of slavery in Egypt and put them in a promised land, a land of promise, which was Israel. And as they were about to enter into Israel, there was a book called Deuteronomy that's written. It's basically a lesson of advice for how God's people are to live in the promised land. And it tells them to expect some things that are coming up. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read this. You'll cross the Jordan. That's one of the boundary markers of Israel. You'll cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings and sacrifices, tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. So what's God saying to them? When you get into this promised land, then God promises to give you rest and to choose a home for you to dwell in, a place, a city for you to dwell in and for him to take center stage. And I think that's what was on David's mind when he gets to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel because he's having a rest. Now, when do we have rest? Well, we have rest when we have enough prosperity and peace. It's really helpful, Tom, to hear you pray for peace in our world. Uh, You can't have a holiday in Syria at the moment, can you? It's unimaginable to us the level of fear and disorder and the brokenness in society. You just can't do it. And so at some level, prosperity enables us to rest. And what do we do when we're on holidays? When we're on holidays, is it a time of great godliness? It's probably not, is it? When we rest, do our thoughts turn, oh God, I've got more time to sing praises to you and to go to church three times a day or something? It's not, is it? Down tools. Forget about God. I want you to see a better response from King David. When 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 to 3. After the king had settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here am I, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God, that's the ark of the covenant, uh, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Essentially, Nathan says, David, you've been smashing this recently. Clearly, God's on your side. Go for it. Whatever you want, go for it. Okay, that's the English-Australian paraphrase of, uh, of what was said there. Uh, rest is a challenge, and David responds to it beautifully. David chooses to honor God in his rest. So he says, here am I, I'm sitting in my palace, and God is... His, uh, all the center of worship of God is in a tent. That's not good. We should do something about that. And so David chooses to honor God. There's a great quote I read through the week in preparing for this sermon. It said this, Prosperity is harmless only when it is accepted as an opportunity for fresh forms of devotion and not as an occasion for idle self-indulgence. So that's really helpful. Prosperity is harmless only when it's accepted as an opportunity for fresh forms of devotion. In other words, prosperity doesn't hurt you when you turn your mind to God. Otherwise, prosperity makes us fat and godless, I think. I think. I think that's what happens. And so I want to say to you, when you're on holidays, when you've got nothing else on your agenda, where does your mind turn to? Does it turn to God? Does it turn to God? 
Well, we're, we're going to keep looking at 2 Samuel 7 here. And in order to do so, I need to tell you a little bit about this idea of covenants. This is my overview of the Bible. I use it to explain the big picture of what's going on in the Bible. So the first book of the Bible here, God creates the world. We've got Jesus coming here. And then at the end of the Bible, the Bible tells us we have a new heaven and a new earth. Along the way, throughout the Bible, God makes covenants or commitments to his people. One of them is Noah in Genesis chapter 8, where God gives him the sign of the rainbow and tells him he won't destroy the world by flood. The one that forms Israel is made to a guy called Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. That happens in Genesis chapter 12. Then Moses, who we mentioned before in Exodus 19 and 20, is told God makes a covenant with Israel and says, here's how you're to live. I'm going to give you 10 commandments and a bunch of other stuff that will explain how you should live in a way that's pleasing to me. And then we get to the biggest one of all in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a promise to David, and that's exactly where we are now. It intrigues me, if you have a look at... Um, at verse 4, it says, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. It's interesting for me in the sense that God doesn't speak directly to David. He speaks to Nathan, a prophet, and gets Nathan to talk to David. Now, now back in the day, my grandfather used to record conversations and ship them off to England to his relatives. Really interesting on a reel-to-reel tape, okay? And the reason for that was telephone calls, do you remember this, used to be expensive? Anyone remember this? I once had a $75 phone call with my brother in Kazakhstan. We only made that mistake once. Um, but, but they used to be expensive. And so what he used to do is they'd sit around and they'd have a conversation. It'd be recorded on this. And when you got it, it was just like they were in the room with you. A recording of their word was still immensely personal. And so I could call it a real word, yes? Very good. Okay, all right. So here we are, here we are, even though Nathan is speaking to David about what God had said to him, David receives it as the real word of God. And that's good because you and I have received the real word of God, haven't we? You might not have heard God speaking to you personally, but he has recorded his word and that's what we're hearing today. So he speaks to him and says this, verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to this very day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house for me of cedar? Sorry. Oh, just to be clear, when it says God has dwelt with them, he's dwelt in a tent, what you might have is a picture of God trying to fit in a tent, right? N- not what he's saying. He's saying that the ark, this box that contained the Ten Commandments, gold box, he's saying that symbolizes the presence of God, and that has been set up in a tent. Is that okay? So it's not like the God of the universe is wandering around in a tent. That, that's not what's happening. At any rate, God is speaking here and he's saying to David, mate, you think you need to build me a house? Don't presume to know what I need. I don't need a house. I don't need you to build a house for me. But then God says, I'm going to tip this on its head. I'm going to do something for you. 
And at this point, I think it's really quite interesting. Uh, I was flying home from Melbourne a little while ago, and um, I was sitting up there, and I realized as the sun was setting, have you done this? You look out the window, and I'm looking up there, and I'm just going, man, how did I get here? How did I get here? I'm 30,000 feet above the ground. I'm traveling at 1,000 kilometers now. I am watching the earth from a place that human beings haven't been able to watch the earth since time began, up until just this little slither of time that we're in now. How did I get here? How am I suspended above the earth in relative comfort? Relative. Uh, relative comfort, watching this beautiful scene. How did I get here? Well, I think David has a bit of a how did I get here moment being the king of Israel. And God tells him how he got here. Have a look at verses 8 to 9. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. If David was to look at his resume and say, how did I get from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel? The answer is, God did it. God did it. That's how it happened. God was the one who got him where he couldn't be. And now God will do great things for Israel. Have a look at the next set of verses in verses 10 to 11. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. You see, God will establish David and he will establish and sustain the nation of Israel. Now, David's about to be told some more amazing things that are going to happen. But in order to make sense of that, I've got to tell you a little bit about multifocals. Does anyone wear multifocals here? Are they helpful? Great. So the idea is they've got different viewing distances, right? So in this case, I want to say that David's about to be told something about the future, stuff that's ahead of him. But it's got different planes in it. Some of it will be the present. So God's about to tell him, this is what's just about to happen. Some of it will be in the near future, just a little bit further ahead. And some of the stuff that David's about to be told by God is in the far distant future. So God, who's in charge of everything, is about to reveal the future to David and tell him what is happening. So let's uh, get one more thing clear. Um, uh, did you watch the royal wedding? Of course you did. Who lives here? Queen, good, yes, okay, the queen, well done. Uh, whose family is this? The royal family is the queen's family. Fantastic. Very good. Okay, bear with me. This is going to make sense in a second. Okay. So this is Buckingham Palace, which is a royal house. And this is the house of Windsor, which is a royal family. Are you with these two things? So one is a physical house and the other is the generations of a particular family. That's the house of Windsor. Okay. You get the distinction? All right. This is important as we look at this next little section here. Have a look with me at verses 11 to 16. The Lord declares to you, this is speaking to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David had thought, God, I'm going to build you a house. And now God's saying, David, I'm going to build you a house. 
And we might think God's going to whack up a little shed for David. That's not what he means. When your days are over, verse 12, and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, what was the kind of house that God was going to build for David? Not a physical house, but like the house of Windsor, a line of descent will come from David. In fact, we could call it Davidic, because it's of David, a Davidic dynasty. It's going to come from David. And in the near future, we'll see in the history of Israel, the kings of Israel will be descendants of David. Descendant, 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 tracing their way back to David. But more than that, we see in the very near future, one of his offspring will build the house for God. And so King Solomon, David's own son, will build the temple. And then there's a far-off future, a far-off future, one where someone, from your ki- someone who's de- descended from you will rule on your throne forever. A Messiah, an anointed one will come, and the only person who can fit that is someone that David can't even really imagine who's going to come, who is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to come. He's going to be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 here. It's an interesting note, though. It says, I will be his father and he will be my son. That sounds a lot like Jesus. But when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Essentially, what it's saying here is some of David's descendants, some of David's descendants will be disciplined by God. It will be a dynasty under discipline. David's sons who do wrong, God will punish. God will punish. So what do you do if you get told something incredible like this? I mean, imagine somebody rocks up to you. I am telling you today, your descendants will establish a throne that will last forever. Now, some of us like having grandchildren, right? I assume there's some people here who are happy about that, uh, about Charlotte, right? Beautiful. Our family goes on. And in particular cultures, it's even more important when we have a boy, isn't it? The family name goes on, yeah? And here David is being told, David, your line will go forever. That's happy grandparent day, can I just say. That's pretty amazing. So what does he do when he hears about the staggering, awesome promise of God? What does he do? He does what all of us do when we stand under the stars. Have you done that recently? When we stand out under the stars, we say, who am I? How could something so staggering make me feel so small? Who am I? And so that's David before the promises of God. Have a listen to him in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. So he went from his palace to the tent. He left his royal opulence and went and sat in the tent because who was there? God, the promise maker. And so he went and sat in the tent before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? 
And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. It's beautiful, isn't it? David just says, God, you're awesome. I can't believe you included me in your plan. And this is the proper response to grace. God, you're incredible. I feel small. God, you're amazing. Your promises are incredible. I feel small. And we see that throughout the Bible. We see it with Abraham when he gets given the great promise, you're going to be a great nation. He says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. When God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to set, use you to set my whole people free. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? We see it with John the Baptist who prepares for Jesus. And he says, Jesus, he must become greater. I must become less. We see it with the Apostle Paul who sees God saved him when he was totally unworthy. He was a persecutor of the church. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles. The proper response to grace is absolute humility. Now, they were great promises. So God made promises to, um, to David. David, it's all going to happen. It's going to be amazing. David died and he had sons and they died and he had sons and they died and the nation of Israel wandered. It was going to be a thousand years until that promise was fulfilled. And so what did I do? I googled, show me a thousand year old ruin. And so here's a temple from Thailand, I think it is, that's a thousand years old. In good nick? Cambodia, is it? I was tossing that up. You've been? Brilliant. Um, so, okay, Cambodia, thank you. I'll take that correction. Um, so here it is, a thousand years old. Is it looking good, Nick? How would you feel if you're the people of God and you're told one day a descendant of David will rule on your throne forever? They're going, has the Messiah come yet? No. Has the Messiah come yet? No. Has the Messiah come yet? No. Imagine doing that like your kids on a long journey. No, imagine doing that. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. They, they did that for years. They had to wait a thousand years before this bloke turned up. What had happened to the promise? Well, God was working on it. And this guy here turned up. I called Jesus. You might have heard of him. And uh, he wandered around. He taught. He did miracles. And he had a conversation with his disciples after a while. That's the reading that we had from Matthew chapter 16. And in there, it says in, uh, in chapter, 13, uh, chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? That's him. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, the idea was everyone could see Jesus was pretty special. He's one of the prophets, probably. But then Jesus says this, and it's the question you need to hear today. Jesus says this, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And so Peter, who's always the first to jump in, Peter says, Simon, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, not a prophet. 
not a prophet, but the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for. And so who is Jesus? What has happened in the time of Jesus is this. The son of David has finally come. How do we know this? Because he was born in King David's city, the city of Bethlehem. He's descended from David. But more than that, he's the son of God, which is what the prophecy had said. Because he's born of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember we said that in the creed at the start? Born of the Virgin Mary. So he's the son of David, he's the son of God, and he will be revealed to be the flogged son, the one who is beaten with rods and whipped by human hands. Jesus is stunningly the Christ. It took a thousand years, but God fulfilled in 2 Samuel 7 in his son. God fulfilled it. He didn't let his promise fall to the ground. And so this is how the apostles start to preach Jesus. The first day the church is being formed, Peter stands up. There's a whole bunch of Jews in front of him. And he says this, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch, that's the father, David, died and was buried a thousand years ago. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and... He is the Messiah. God has shown that Jesus is the fulfillment of this thousand-year-old longing in the people of God. How brilliant. How brilliant. This is the founding and sustaining message of the church. Jesus is the Christ, is the promised king. So let me think about some application for us today. You've heard that story. Often we will find ourselves in such a peaceful place. How will we use our prosperity? How will we use the opportunity we have? Will our hearts turn to God or into ourselves? Secondly, Will we have friends who speak the word of God to us? It was really important for David to have Nathan alongside. Remember, (laughs) David thought, I'm just going to build a house for God. And Nathan said, go for it. Until God intervened and said, hey, Nathan, tell him he can't do it. Do you have anyone in your life who'll speak the word of God to you and change what seems to be a brilliant plan into a plan that is in line with what God wants? Do you have friends like that? Will we build our faith on the trustworthiness of the promise giver? See, God is a God who keeps his promises. Will we trust that God will keep his promises? He is shown here to be trustworthy. And then finally, will Jesus be our Christ? Will Jesus be our Christ? If he is the king, what does the king deserve from you? What does the king deserve from you? He deserves your best, your all. And so if today you have Jesus as your king, I just want to ask you, how's he going as your king? Are you in mate territory and beyond honoring him as the Lord? And if today you've not made Jesus your Christ, your king, then today is a great day to do that. To think to yourself, I've had Jesus on the side. I do have enough time in my life to think about this. Today is a great day to install him as the king. Let me pray for us 
that we would deal with Jesus, not just as Jesus, but as Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your son. Thank you that you kept your word and your promise was true and trustworthy. Thank you for Jesus who endures beatings and floggings, who dies for our sin, that we might be your children. We ask, Lord, that we might honour him as our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to remember what it is that Jesus has done for us in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do now. Now, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to do something symbolic that reminds us of what Jesus did. Now, we did something symbolic with the water, which is magically removed. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we did something with the water, didn't we say? This water reminds us of the cleansing that Jesus offers. And we're going to see that this bread, these tiny little pieces of bread, and this cup with the juice in it will remind us, will be symbols for us of what God has done. So I'm going to invite you, if you're someone who's trusting in Jesus, as we pass this round, to take the bread and the cup and then to enjoy it with us together. So don't eat it when you get it. Hang on to it. But before we get to that, I'm going to uh, lead us in some things that will remind us about what these are. So I'm going to say, lift up your hearts, and you're going to go the dark bit, the bold bit. Is that right? Uh, lift up your hearts. That's pretty good. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Well, on the night before he died, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup. It wasn't plastic. Okay. He took the cup, and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray this prayer together. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. Well, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, and we do this until he returns. Fantastic. Come, let us eat and drink, and remember that Christ died for us, and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I'm going to invite some people to come and help me. Nelson and Nicole, can you guys come and help me? And Jeff and Kathy, could you guys come and help me? What we're going to do, folks, is we're going to pass the bread and the juice around, pass the juice from the front. Nelson, if you want to start here and pass it back. Nicole, if you can do the same for the middle. And Kathy, if you can do the side. And then the bread from the back. 